Welcome back to Neurotech Pub. This is part two of a two-part series on BCI Pioneers. This episode is being co-hosted with Taryn Southern, the creative director at BlackRock Neurotech. So if you're just starting to listen to this, you should go back to part one and listen to that first. If you happen to miss our last episode with Jan and Ian and Nathan, please give it a listen. We talked about the experiential side of PCI as a study participant. And this episode, we're talking about everyone's journey from implant to explant and their hopes for this technology. Um, Also, please note for any of you listening, Jan did experience some Zoom difficulties at the end of the podcast. So she had to drop a little bit early, but we will link to her projects in the show notes. So um, you can keep up with her there. And in our last podcast, we interviewed some CEOs of neurotech companies Two of the CEOs uh, in that podcast had questions for the BCI participants. One, which you'll hear in a moment, is Brian Pepin, the CEO of Rune Labs. And the other that you'll hear a little bit later in the episode is Carolina Aguilar, the CEO of InBrain Neuroelectronics. We're going to kick things off today with a question from Brian Pepin. We told him that we would have some of these BCI pioneers on the show, and we asked him if he had any questions for Nathan, Ian, or Jan. And this is what he said. You know, there was a New Yorker article, like, I don't know, sometime in the last two or three months that it was, it was a, it kind of about the patients who were implanted with the old NeuroVista system, but it was sort of exploring like the relationships that these, these folks had with their device from like a, how it incorporated into their identity perspective. And it was, it was interesting. It was really divergent because like some people really, it became part of them and it felt like part of them and it felt very natural. And some people that never, that connection was never really made. And I don't know, the article didn't really dive into why, but I think that's, that's, I don't know, just philosophically a really interesting kind of area of how people, after they have something that's, especially for like Utah, like they're, you know, I assume like locked in patients, right? Like, like how they think, what, what would they think if that was suddenly like taken away? Because, you know, that's like a real threat for a lot of these folks that, you know, at the end of the brain gate trial or whatever, there won't be any more support and it'll be taken away. And so like how they, how they think about that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that question is really interesting because, you know, for me, when I was looking at the beginning of the trial, I really thought, you know, one of the selling points was that it wasn't going to change me because it was something I was only using in the lab and, you know, it wasn't going to impact my life negatively but then when we got to it and it looks like you know where the trial was at one point starting to end and the device was still working just fine i had to fight to keep the device because you know i i thought there's a some good purpose to keeping it um, even if the trial isn't actively going on because we had some you know funding issues and things like that but we are still applying for future funding and I didn't want to subject myself to a couple extra surgeries that I didn't need. And, you know, then when we finally got to the end of the trial and I was ready for explant, it was a little bit of a second injury to me because it was taking that part of my life away once again of, you know, because I wasn't able to use my hand exactly like I had previously to my spinal cord injury, but I was able to use it when I was in the lab and do a lot of things that I can't do without it. Um, now I don't have that sense of, oh, well, I can go into the lab and still use this part of my body. So it, it was something that was really interesting um, because I had to cope with that and having that 
almost second injury again of losing, you know, that level of independence. It was something that I, I signed up for. I saw it coming, um, which was obviously much different than my spinal cord injury, which I did not sign up for, but it was still really challenging in the sense that, you know, I had this, all this possibility and capability for a while. And then that was stripped away from me again. What about you, Jan? Was that a challenging process for you? The explant? When the explant happened, it was very abrupt. There was a small tear on my scalp where the scalp attached to the, the pedestal. And they said, this is allowing for possibility of infection. So my neurological surgeon came and looked at it, said she had to talk to some people. She came back to the lab on Thursday and said, yeah, we're going to have to take out the device. Tell tomorrow sound for surgery. And it was just so abrupt. Before the surgery ever happened, I consulted with a psychiatrist who said, how do you think you'll feel when this is over? And I said, I think I'll be sad that it's over, but glad that I had the chance to participate. And after the explant, that's, how I felt for a couple of weeks. Well, I'm glad I was able to do this. It was, this was a good thing. But one day, a couple of weeks later, I just burst out in tears and sobbed for about 20 minutes, and, and then it was over. And what I missed was not so much the capability I had physically with Hector. I missed going to the lab. I missed my coworkers because I had a job. You know, I was interacting with other people. I was part of a research team. Uh, we worked crossword puzzles together. And I asked Jen about her kids and talking about her kids. And John bringing samples of cupcakes his girlfriend made. And, you know, we helped watch Brian get ready for his wedding. And these were all very exciting things to be part of and be part of people's lives. And although I keep in touch with them now, it's not the same as having a job to go to every day. So I felt more like I lost a job. And, and that's what I miss more. Of course, that was eight years ago. So looking back now, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm so glad I had to, was able to do it. Dan and Ian, if there was something that, some insights that could be gleaned from that experience that could be shared with research teams or companies that are, you know, are putting these devices um you know, in patients, how, how to, pre- I guess, how to approach these kinds of scenarios so that mentally and emotionally you're in the best possible position to navigate a transition with the device. I think part of it is just awareness, making the consumer aware if this will end, when it will end, or how it will end, or that it might end abruptly for this reason. Then trying to get them mentally prepared. I had a psychologist who was available in the, at any time during our study. He called me every couple months to make sure I was doing okay. And especially after the explant, he called and was checking in on me. I think that being available to all the consumers would help them more than talking to the researchers because they don't know how to handle the emotions. Now, my psychologist was actually... Um, physically challenged himself so he knew the emotions that people go through uh, when they're like this and how to help the people deal with that. Ian, how about you? Any ideas? The best idea I have is to make sure that it doesn't need to happen. Be able to 
you know, build a device that's reliable enough. Um, but there's always going to be something that will come up. It's inevitable in life. And, you know, for me, that transition was made a little bit easier. It wasn't as abrupt as Jan's because um, I first had, you know, the COVID shutdown that gave us a little gap in our our research. And then we started things back up. And then I started having, you know, smaller issues. And so it wasn't as abrupt as, okay, the next day you need to get this out. So I did have some time to process it. But I think one of the, the big things that for me was challenging was, you know, when we hit, I don't know, it was somewhere around the four and a half year mark. Um, that was when, you know, the study was looking like it was going to end just because of lack of funding, not necessarily because we were done with the research or the device wasn't working. And that's something that is preventable that you can do pre, you know, prior um, to make sure that you have funds set aside to support the device ongoing if something happens with the researchers or the company who's making it. Um, so that way you're not, you know, having to remove the device over something as silly as lack of funding. Um, and, you know, outside of that, I think there's just some things that are inevitable where the device will fail or you'll hit it on something and um, or you'll get an infection or whatever it may be. Um, but doing everything that you have control over um, is something that really needs to be addressed so that you're not leaving patients who you're there to, you know, do research on. But also ultimately it's, you know, all these hospitals and research institutions are doing this for the patient good and, you know, improving the quality of care and quality of lives of individuals that should entail, you know, making sure that devices are going to work as long as possible. Ian, I'd be curious, and, and for, for all of you, like we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast that develop neural technologies and bring computer interfaces. There's def, There are definitely different schools of thought on this. I think there's one prominent neurotechnology company that thinks that these kind of devices could be like quick turnover kind of consumer goods. If you were getting into this again, like what would be your expectation for how long you would want a device to last? Well, I'm certainly open to being implanted again. And, you know, now having gone through it once already, I certainly know th certain things that I'd look for. Um, but I'd definitely want a device that's going to last, you know, at least 10 years um, before it would need upgraded or removed or whatever it may be. Um, I mean, obviously, like I said earlier, there's still those unforeseen circumstances that may arise, but I think 10 years is the minimum of what you want to do for a device that you're requesting someone to have one, if not two neurosurgeries for. I was thinking the same amount of time, 10 years, that for a minimum. Yeah, I think 10 is uh, a good uh, amount, and hopefully I get there, you know, especially if it's uh, moved into the, the consumer phase. And it's not tied to a study that, you know, is already expected to be limited. And it's like when I joined the research study, it was it was a, a one year, one year thing. And they said, after a year, we can 
submits uh, stuff to the FDA and maybe extend it. And so that got extended to up to five years after uh, implant. And then I hit that and then, okay, we'll submit stuff again. And now it's uh, up to 10 years. And it, it's basically, I guess, one of those things that as long as there's funding and it's still working, I will uh, be able to keep using them. But uh, to go back to the question, I've never really developed any kind of special relationship with uh, my implants or the the robotic arm, the things I controlled. It's uh, I I know they're there, and when I'm not using them, I you know I don't think about them at all. And even when I am using them, I don't uh, think about the individual pieces very much. It, it is just me. And uh, as someone who hasn't experienced X-Plant yet, I can only imagine how bad it will feel, but I know it will be uh, a huge hit to me. Um, uh, Cause like, like Ian said, it's, it's these abilities that get, you know, suddenly taken away from you. And, you know, he was, only using his uh, stuff to move his hands in the lab. Uh, but I'm, you know, using this portable system at home, and it's it's moved from, you know, I don't just do lab testing, you know, semi-boring stuff with it. Like, I, I'm doing hobbies. I'm doing potentially, you know, selling these things to have money to live a better life and that could just one day be gone and like Jan said it's like a job but for me it's you know a job but I'm seeing my friends a couple times a week I'm getting out of the house like everyone at the lab even though you know I started with uh the same people that Jan left with and then they got their PhDs and they moved on and now there's another group and uh, some of that group have moved on and now there's a new group but they all end up just being like friends basically and it's it's not you know some sterile clinical environment where you know I go in and they say do this and do this and it's not real interaction like I'm talking to these people about you know, our lives and the anime that we watched and, you know, movies and playing games and and all that stuff. So it when it gets taken away, which uh, is inevitable, I don't know uh, how bad I will feel. I just know I'll feel really bad. But my main hope is that my implant works and the study is going on for long enough that some of these devices have moved into the next phase and you know I can get an explant and maybe I can get another reimplant surgery at the same time and continue to do the things that I like and you know like a cell phone plan like you have it for this many years you're due for a free upgrade and then you know it's it's the newer better model and you can do more stuff with it and I think hearing from all of you across the board about these experiences is what motivates companies like BlackRock and Paradromics 
to keep pushing this forward so that it's it's not only relegated to a few handful of clinical trials, yeah. right? May I take it back for a minute to the question he had about our relationships with our implants. I had a relationship with Hector, my robotic arm. We had an agreement in the lab that I got credit for all the successes. Hector took the blame for all the failures. <laughs> of course, I wrote that agreement. Hector didn't have much say in it. But when I was explanted, I went back a week later to the lab to say goodbye to Hector. And I didn't know why, why I felt I had to do it physically because I did it at home. It was a very difficult thing to do at home, but in my mind, I say goodbye to Hector and thank them for all the interaction and for doing so well. And I don't know if I was saying goodbye to all the lab people in my mind, or to me, it was saying goodbye to Hector. And it was a very emotional thing for me. The pedestals on my head, which I named Lewis and Clark, <laughs> I... I didn't have such a close relationship with them because because I couldn't see them. You know, it's not like I looked in the mirror all the time. I wasn't even aware of them. So I didn't miss those. But, yeah, the, the guy I worked with, my right hand, as it were, my right hand man was Hector. And I had to say goodbye to him. I, I would go into the lab and always hear stories about Jan, like, making little, like, costume, like, covers for her pedestals. Uh, yeah. Like, for, like, holidays and stuff. Then I remember, like, for Halloween the one year, I the pedestal caps are just brown. I took tape and made one black and one red and made them, like, battery terminals. That was my extent. <laughs> that's so cool. But then I went in and they gave me new ones. I was like, oh, that's not fun. So, yeah, it's, it is, like I said, it's hobbies and, like, I don't know, kind of, like, business ventures kind of things that that it's it's not just something I do for fun that you know because I get out of the study and I'm back to like low income living in the middle of nowhere and so Nathan do you have to be hooked up to yours every day in your apartment um I don't I don't have to but I uh, mean if you want to use them to hook you up um whatever aid is around um can hook them on because they don't, uh, it doesn't use the bulky, like, patient cables. Um, they use the, uh, Seraplexes, Neuroplex, whatever you call them, Neuroplexes, because they're for people, not animals. But even though I need a new pair that say Neuroplex on them, and some, some flames or something, yeah. But so then they just use a, a really small, like, micro HDMI cable, so... Um, I can sit here and, and be plugged in to it, even though I, you know, may or might, may not use it. Uh, it can just be plugged in. The, the worst thing is, uh, it has to be powered by batteries right now. So every 40 minutes, I need someone around to swap the batteries out. And luckily enough, I have three, three batteries and I can charge two at once. So I can cycle pretty much uh, indefinitely through the batteries because sometimes I might I might use it for like six or eight hours a day playing some games and stuff. What I would have improved about mine was just to make it portable. And obviously there's been a lot of progress on that and that Nathan has the device at home now. It's battery powered. I could only use mine in the lab. It involved being hooked up to one device and the control panel that was the size of two large screen TVs and 
yeah, there was nothing about that I could do at home. So looks like there's go they're going a long way already towards making it usable at home. And then I would, you know, obviously, you know, wireless would be great, and you know that's being worked on, and it wouldn't really work with the the sensory stimulation stuff, but it would still be you know really cool. You know, it's it's one of those things that. As you go, the improvements are getting made little by little because I would have said, you know, get rid of the big gray patient cables and now we're, you know, not using those. And, you know, it is it is portable. Now I would like, you know, uh, a more powerful home system that could stay plugged in and, and do all that stuff. One thing that is not ready for home use at all is robots. No one has made a robot that is good enough to use in the house. Um, they all need mounted on big frames and they have limited range of use and it just, uh, it wouldn't be helpful. I don't know if anyone is, you know, thinking about the robot side of things. Well, they Ooh. should is once commercialization becomes a thing. I think that makes a lot of sense. They should. It should be a Japanese company and they should fly me out to consult. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, um, what would what would you like to see? You've said you'd be, you know you would be interested in participating in another study or maybe one day having a co- like commercial implant. What's what's your what's your dream? What's what's the thing that you would like to see on offer? For me, I just want it to be you know echoing what Jan and Nathan said is something that's portable and you can use all day long. Um, you need to have it to be something that doesn't require a. PhD student or an engineer to get set up um, or to kind of retrain any of the algorithms and things like that. Um, I would definitely lean to having something that was fully implantable so you really minimize that risk of infection once things heal. And, you know, just so it can be a, another tool that you're using in your life, just like using a wheelchair or using a keyboard and mouse to be able to navigate your environment. Um, so, you know, the easier things are then integrating that into being that keyboard and mouse or controlling environmental controls like a smart home and things like that or using it to drive a car um, or drive your wheelchair, any things like that. Um, but really just something that you look at the individual and you don't even know it's there. The other thing, and this is kind of jumping around because Taryn and I had so many questions we wanted to ask you, but one of the things that, that, that I was wondering is um, all three of you are kind of pioneering spirit. You said like you, you encountered this and you were like, yep, I'm in, like sign me up. And I'm wondering, you know, you three probably had a lot of people in your lives. I'm sure some of them were like, you should do this, go for it. I'm sure some of them were more cautious. You know, it was a major surgery, you know, what, how did that dynamic unfold in your lives? In my life, I waited till the entire family. Now, my entire family is my mom, my eight siblings, their seven spouses, then all the grandkids. So when we get together for Christmas, there's about 40 of us. And I had only told the only people who knew about this were my husband and my kids and my mom. So at the Christmas gathering. I showed them the video of Tim Hammies, and I said, I'm going to be the next one to do it. I've signed up for this experiment. And 
they were all really glad to hear it. I remember my little nephew, uh, Corbin, came running over and gave me a big hug. And those who were worried about it or afraid I might be leaping in without really thinking about it were smart enough to approach my husband and ask him as Jan thought this through. Is this safe? Instead of questioning me. I remember when I told my kids about it, my daughter Elizabeth, I said, after a while, I said, you're not asking if it's safe. And she says, well, I know you. You would have agreed to participate if it's not safe. You've already researched it and you know it's as safe as it can be. So most of the people I knew were very enthusiastic for me and said, you'd be a really good person for this. You have a lot of enthusiasm. Um, this would be a good project for you. Um, and those who didn't, as I say, were smart enough not to tell me so. I didn't hear about their uh, reservations for many, many months. But they all came and visited me in the lab and got pictures shaking hands with Hector. I had kind of the, the opposite experience where um, I had friends that were happy and excited and, and knew kind of, you know, that I was going to do it because it was uh, cool and I wanted to push the science forward and all that. And then my mom uh, was really against it. And at the time she was my primary caregiver. So it made things uh, pretty difficult at home because uh, she basically wouldn't talk to me for, for a long time. And she would you know, call my sister and kind of blow up at her, like, oh, is your brother crazy? He survived his car accident, and he had a stroke, and he was, you know, no mental issues, and now he wants to have, like, voluntary brain surgery, and and she wouldn't take me to any of the pre-surgery testings and, and all that. She just kind of, you know, shut me out for you know, a while until, you know, I had the implants and everything was working okay and that kind of stuff. But luckily I did have some family like my sister and my grandma and uh, like a great aunt that were like, okay, we'll take you to your tests uh, before surgery. And my grandma was like, I'll take you to your surgery. And my sister would drive me to Pittsburgh on days to do testing. And my friend who had just quit his job at the time. He, he didn't have anything better to do, so he would take me into testing, and I had enough support to get by, and now my mom's okay, and everything's still going okay. So, But it was, it was rough for a while. For me, it was something where I had really already made up my mind before I even talked to my family and friends about what was going on. Um, I definitely got some pushback from my family, similar to Nathan, where it's, you know, you just had your spinal cord injury and you're doing fine. There's no promise that this is going to positively impact your quality of life. Why do you want to do this? And, you know, that was something that was a much easier question for me to answer in my mind than to put words to. But it was really, you know, I, I believed in the possibility of what it could achieve in the future and that I had a, a great opportunity to do it. Um, so I, I really jumped at it, but it was something I had to sell my friends and family on, you know, that, hey, this is safe. Um, because, you know, similar to 
my spinal cord injury where I was the first quadriplegic that I knew, I was the first person with a BCI that I knew. And that was a little challenging because there were some things that I, you know, had reservations about as far as living with the pedestal coming out of your skull and things like that. And at that point in time, I didn't know anyone else that had it. So I couldn't go and ask them. So hopefully in the future, there's something that can be a avenue for individuals that are interested in this to connect with others on. But, you know, I'm really glad that I did it. And, you know, even through the ups and downs of the trial, it was definitely worth doing. Is there something that any of you would want to explicitly say to like uh, someone who's thinking about this or like a family member who's, you know, struggling with this? Is there? Well, I've been asked in the past to talk to people to have been thinking about participating in a study and tell them my experience with it. And I've talked to them on the phone or through emails and told them how positive my experience was. And I hope that that's still in place. That there's anyone that's thinking about participating in this or having the surgery done, having this implants put in, that they are able to t- get in touch with us so we can tell them about our experience and uh, how positive it was. I'm curious, generally, uh, within the various communities that you three are a part of, what the temperature is. The, like the general temperature is for for something like this, especially as companies move towards towards making them more widely available. Um, is it something that you feel people you do speak to are relatively open to, or what are the what are the reservations that you hear most frequently? I've definitely seen both sides of it, where you have people who are eager to excited, sign me up, let me go, I'm next, and you have people who are saying, no way, I'm letting anyone cut into my head and put something in my brain. Um, I think, you know, it's different for every individual as far as what their risk aversion is like. But at the same point, as things progress and mature and you, you change that value proposition of what you're getting out of the device versus, oh, it's just something you can use while you're in the lab and you're going to have to, you know, dedicate all this time for the research. Um, that's going to change a lot of people's minds. Um, and as well as, you know, having more surgeons that have done these devices. Um, for me, I was relatively at ease with the surgeon who did mine because he routinely does deep brain stimulation surgery. And, you know, just to, to oversimplify things, that's going much deeper into the brain. For me, it's just cutting open a portion of my skull, putting in the the array, closing me back up, and I go home. That's great. Um, But if we can get it to the point where it really is much more routine, then that will change people who are a little bit more against it. Um, But even if it is how it is right now, I mean, I think all three of us have had positive experiences and would gladly do it again. Yeah, I've I've talked to a couple um, people that were thinking about participating in you know, it's just a little bit of the, yeah, like you're probably going to have some pain after surgery and, you know, you have to put aside a lot of your time to go to the lab and testing and the consent form says you're not going to have any benefits. But uh, for me, I've just had a lot of uh, benefits uh, to my 
myself as a person, I've, I've grown a lot. You know, I never would have been comfortable speaking to a room full of 10 people, let alone like 200. And I just, um, you know, I've kind of grown to actually enjoy doing it and look forward to the next conference that I can speak at. And before the world shut down, that involved traveling to places I never would have got to. Well, thank you guys for lending your voices because not, I don't think um, all participants are necessarily open to sharing their, their personal stories and the vulnerable aspects of the research and the kind of evolution of, of your work with these devices. So we're just really grateful that you all have been so front facing. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, for people who are developing these technologies now, it's, it's inspirational. I mean, puts puts a face to the the things that they're working on that they probably know abstractly and intellectually that they're they're doing something useful but this is extremely helpful i mean speaking just personally the uh ha- handicapped community that i am in touch with in pittsburgh we all bristle at the word inspirational because they're so tired of being inspirations my favorite joke is how many handicapped people does it take to change a light bulb it takes five one to change it and four to say how inspirational that was. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, we're not doing it to be inspirations. This is how we're living our lives and how we're trying to contribute to science. The fact that we are inspirations is a side effect, I'll say, not necessarily benefit. A side effect, I certainly understand. Well, I will say the three of you have chosen to, to share your stories. And not everyone chooses to do that. And I think that is hard. Um, or maybe, I mean, maybe not. Maybe, maybe it just comes naturally. But I, I think that it, but it is something that um, is important. It's really important. I, we had one more question from, from Carolina that we had queued up. Matt, I will ask them, would they do it? Would, would they have got a youth array if they wouldn't have the disability? So thinking about the potential of these interfaces in the future, would they do it without a disability? I'm sorry, would we do it what? Carolina's asking, would either of the three of you ever have considered getting a brain implant if you know you didn't have a medical condition? No. I am absolutely the type that would say yes in a heartbeat. It's the kind of stuff that I thought was so cool, like all my life, you know, I grew up watching anime and sci-fi movies and robots and cyborgs and so that kind of stuff and playing video games just it definitely would have drawn me in to saying yes and I don't know I just like to be on the cutting edge if I can like if I had the money I would have the best gaming computer and you know best tv and I would just always be trying to find where that the edges and keep on it. You really do belong in Japan, Nathan. That was meant to be a compliment, by the way. <laughs> They're just very advanced. Yes. I always joke that I'm actually too old to be a, a robot pilot if I was there, because you got to be like 16 and all and all the anime. That's that's prime robot cyborg age. Ian, what about you? We're in the year 2050. Yeah, I mean, certainly the tipping point for me was because I wanted to use it to control the stimulation sleeve on my arm. But I think as things mature and if I didn't have my disability, if 
if that value proposition is there, if it's if it can be a tool to let me do some aspect of my life or work better, um, I think it's going to be something that's really intriguing to a lot of people. And I would be one of those people because I, like Nathan, I have always been a little bit more of an early adopter of technology. And I'd rather, you know, figure out a way to do something a little bit better, even if it's clunky at first, um, which is kind of what we're all experiencing right now with the BCI. Um, but I mean, if I can use it to interact with my computer and do things faster than anyone else, that gives me that extra edge, whether that be, you know, if I'm playing a game or in the you know corporate world of, you know, having to drive Excel or some other application like that, I think it would be a great tool to have in your toolbook. Super interesting. Well, I see no reason. Why would you have an operation like this? So you could do a less, uh, a poorer job of it with a robotic arm. Yeah, I certainly see that, um, you know, right now, but hopefully in the future we get to the point where, you know, it's, it is just more routine because it adds better value to your life. It, it is interesting though, while I say that I really would, I wear contacts right now and I don't want to have LASIK surgery um, because I see that as, you know, the value proposition isn't there for me because it's a little bit more, you know, even though it's a widely done procedure, it's a little bit more risky to me because I don't want to be a wheelchair user and blind, you know, and I saw it as the, the brain implant was something where, you know, if things really went wrong, I wouldn't have to worry about it during that it would be something that you know isn't controllable by me um but you know when we get to the point where it's it's safe enough and done routinely enough i think there's going to be a lot more people that will say yes even without having a disability i think it's interesting to see just the range of 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 responses on this and i think there are areas that that fall into this interesting kind of middle ground when you think about trials for depression, for instance, and how many people su have suffered at, at some point in their lives um, from uh, a mental health issue that's been incredibly prohibitive, uh, or you know they have treatment-resistant versions of that, but uh, th this sort of exists on a spectrum. That's a, it's not an easy condition. It's not a black and white condition in the way that some other conditions are. So, um, I think it'll be interesting to see how this conversation evolves. Um, so anyway, thank, thank you for sharing about that. I thought that was really interesting to hear your thoughts. The other thing was, is I just wanted to give each of you a chance to, if there was a message that you wanted to put out there. Ian, do you want to start? Certainly. Yeah. So, well, I guess what all do we want to include? I know you have a lot going on right now. Well, you all do. Yeah, currently my big projects are the foundation that I started, which is the Ian Burkhart Foundation, set up to help other individuals with spinal cord injuries live a higher quality of life and be more independent. And, you know, hopefully we get to the point where we can help fund BCIs for individuals like that. Um, additionally, I do a lot of speaking um, to share my experience and advocate for the use of these types of technologies to allow others to have independence to do whatever they may want to do. Um, I'm also now the vice president of the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium, which is focused on getting individuals with lived experience involved in research to really drive the, the focus of research to make sure it's not 
you know, a bunch of people in an echo chamber making decisions for a group that they don't really know anything about. Because like you guys just said, everything's kind of on that, that spectrum of what it, even individuals with disabilities may want. If that's your target market to start, you really want to make sure you're going down the right paths so that way you have a high opportunity of success. And so where can people, where's the best place for people to find you, Ian? Yeah, best place to find me, I have a website, ianburkhart.com. And there's contact information on there to find my social media um, or email and get in touch with me. Nathan, how about you? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm bcicandobetter at gmail.com is the email, but it's bcicandobetter on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. That's my username on OpenSea, uh, where you can find my NFTs, and also Super Rare. Yeah, for for right now, I'm just kind of working on the the study and making art when I can, and hopefully getting enough followers to make some some life changing money on some of these things. I draw really cool cats. Um, more cats are coming. More more eyes are coming. And and your BCI can do better. Is is there a way you want people to do better? Is there what is what so, what do you want to be better? So that name actually has a couple meanings because first it came about by I was kind of replicating uh, studies that were either done with you know other BCIs like EEG or they were done with monkeys and uh, so I was just kind of repeating some of these basic tasks already and I was like oh I should start a YouTube channel and call it bci can do better and kind of just show me doing these things better and then it also now means bci as a as a whole um can do better there's lots of uh things that can be improved and i always say aren't you glad i'm better than a monkey and you know when i'm explaining things to people and you know doing these tasks and you know sometimes they're not going right and i don't waste everyone's time if if it's not going right, I say, hey, this isn't working how you just explained it to me. And, you know, I, I don't waste everyone's time. I say, aren't, aren't you glad I'm better than a monkey? And so BCI can do better than what has come before. And BCI can do better as a whole moving forward. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I always feel like I learn so much every time I have a new conversation with one of you. Never mind three of you in the same room. That was really fun. Thank you all again. Any final thoughts, Matt, on this uh, two-part journey? I found the discussions really interesting and, and, and to hear, hear from everyone and hear what they wanted to see in a BCI, um, what things were important to them, hear about their experience. Uh, I, think as a, I think as a technologist, a lot of the time I'm abstracting away a lot of these details and, and thinking about it in a very, in a very kind of technical sense, or I have my CEO hat on and I'm talking about markets, but to talk with people who experienced it, I, I found that invaluable. And I think a lot of a lot of people who are listening will think the same. And, and the more to have them in the same space talking as well, right? Like, I don't think that prior to a few years ago, there were a lot of opportunities for the BCI research participants to, to be in the same room and to have these conversations. And there's a lot of insights that can be gleaned from that kind of collaborative discussion. I completely agree. I mean, that's actually been the most interesting thing, not just about this episode, but a neurotech pub format in general. The truth is, is that when you get three people who have a lot of shared experience, but maybe aren't so close that they talk 
regularly, yeah, you get to kind of be there in the room as, as, as the interactions unfold. It's really cool. Great. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And Matt, thank you for having me. Uh, I hope everyone follows and subscribes your podcast. <laughs> everyone who's listening, please check out the show notes so that you can connect more closely with Jan, Ian, and Nathan. Um, you know, they're all active on social media and or LinkedIn. Um, and I know that they would love to, to hear from you. See you all next time. Or maybe not, because I, I don't actually host this podcast. I think you you'll see come me. back if you want to. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you'll definitely see Matt next time, though. <laughs>